Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal, all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today again, cybersecurity. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. We are proud to announce that Buoyancy Digital is the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms for IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training from uh, for media publishers, if not announcers, please reach out and contact Scott at Scott R Media on LinkedIn or visit buoyancydigital.com. Hey there, uh, Jethro. I'm really excited, Fred, about the Center for <laughs> Cyber Ethics. It is so cool. When I read that mission statement, I just get like, yes, yes. It just floors me, Jethro. That is something that I wrote six years ago. And I have been waiting for the moment and the people to help yeah. make that a reality. And I am so psyched that that is you. <laughs> so that we've got this project underway that is, I think, going to make some meaningful difference in how people approach their online activity. At least yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. Well, it's it's very exciting. And, well, and I think we'll be talking is... a lot more about it. <laughs> yes. All right. I am excited to welcome Sam Bourgeois. Do I say that right? Is that Sam Bourgeois? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. I'm excited to welcome Sam Bourgeois to the program. He is an IT director and a consultant with experience in K-12 education, corporate training, and telecommunications. He spent over 10 years living and working in Bush, Alaska, visiting 97 small towns and villages across the state, three years in China, and now resides in Southern Florida with his wife and two boys. He is certified in a number of technology and vendor platforms and skills, but has focused more on cybersecurity in the past three years. He's passionate about privacy, data protection, and cybersecurity, especially when it comes to our youth. He's also the founder of Make It Secure, which is Make IT Secure. Get it? See what he did there? It's good. And he, so he provides services to schools who don't yet have the uh, budget to hire a full-time chief information security officer. So Sam, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. 
Well, we're excited to talk with you. You're someone that I met when I was in Alaska and um, just been a big fan of yours ever since. And it's really fascinating to see how your career has taken the different places that it has. I don't know that you could choose uh, three more distinct environments to live in. Uh, Bush, Alaska, Southern Florida, and China. I mean, that's those are just some of the places you've lived. So uh, first, to just let us know a little bit about you, what else would you add to your bio and what, what you've been and what you've done? Well, I'd, I'd start with, I guess I'd start with where my career began. Um, and I think it's important because in schools, it's important to have <clears throat> not just the right credentials, but also a, a deep understanding of, of the, daily, you know, the daily happenings inside of school. So I was a teacher. Uh, I'm always careful not to say I was just a teacher. I hear that all the time and I, I hate that. I hate that. I was a teacher and I was proud to be a teacher. It was a, it was an amazing profession. And, um, that was, that was the first village I went to in Alaska. And, um, you know, we had a good time. Um, it was, it was a wonderful environment and I learned a lot and I learned a lot about myself. I found that I had a, I guess you could say, a, a gift for education and, and I was hungry. I love to learn every day. I want to learn something new and I try to stay on top of those kind of things, uh, professional development and certifications constantly. So, in Bush, Alaska, I did that, and I ended up becoming a, a consultant, working for a company that 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 sold um, audio visuals and interactivity things like that. So I did a lot of training and uh, a lot of corporate development around you know, it's kind of better meetings, better uh, better communication for teachers. It was digital instruction, paperless classrooms, interactivity. Made a lot of connections, and and a lot of the the shared connections that we three have in Alaska from that job, and I ended up being offered a job into technology. Uh, so I went back into rural Alaska as a educational technology coordinator and then an, a director of technology. And I did that for a couple of years and had a great time, but I met my wife and we were expecting a baby and Bush Alaska's maybe not the best place to have a baby sometimes. So we, we decided to move to Anchorage and that's whenever I took a role. Uh, I was very fortunate to come on with a, a great mentor and I was the senior program manager and then a director operationally focused in telecommunications, supporting all the, the education customers in Alaska for this particular telecom, which is honestly, it's most most of Alaska and learned so, so much. And that's where I really picked up the interest in security. And I met, you know, we had a, a new CISO for that company uh, the first time that that role existed. And I was a real fan of the process and learning about that. And that's when I fell in love with security, to be honest. And, and then my my next role, I went to China. I went to China just kind of looking for an adventure and thinking about putting my family first and trying to get out of the corporate world and, and more kind of in a, a balanced work-life uh, scenario where, you know, where you had time to travel, but we also had, you know, the, the flexibility of time and things like that. And I like to go to school with my son. I like to be around my kids. And uh, China was amazing. China was amazing. I had so many wonderful, wonderful people that I met and um, it taught me a lot again, about myself and also about the world, you know, where do I fit in the world? And it was there that I really dug into the security and I, I got a couple of certifications, um, um, certified information systems, security professional and security management, you know, different skills that I picked up there that were really useful. Then COVID hit. <laughs> we were, we were actually in Boracay on the beach when, when the COVID outbreak happened and I wasn't able to return home. So I never, I never got to see my apartment again. Had to hire people to come and move my stuff and relocated here to, to Southern Florida and work for a wonderful, wonderful school with a great, great team, fantastic group of people. We have two campuses, so I've got two schools that I take care of and really having a good time. 
yeah yeah that's great well let's get into the the meat of our discussion which is going to be around cybersecurity for schools specifically and we've seen this increase in attacks on schools ransomware attacks phishing attacks things like that why are people targeting schools and why aren't why aren't schools doing more to protect themselves from these attacks yeah i think that's it's a huge question you know just I think in the last month or so, there was a, a county just near where I live in, in South Florida that was a victim of a, a ransomware, and it's going to cost them millions. But even worse, you know, one of your guests brought up, I think it was two or three weeks ago, one of your guests brought up the the BlackBot. And I remember you guys were having a conversation about it, and I was just shuddering, shuddering, because that that's us. We had our community, our student data was exposed. And it's not just about exposure. We understand that for maybe your listeners who don't, it's not just about the exposure. It's about the the loss of data or the encryption of the data, basically locking it, right? Um, the BlackBot event, just it, it, it really shook every education institution that I know from my current connections to their very foundations. And it, it's such a simple thing. It really was. It was a very simple thing. It was, it was old tables, old servers that just hadn't been maintained. Somebody didn't follow the documentation. They, they probably have standard operating procedures that say, after this amount of time, destroy this information or encrypt this information. Somebody just didn't follow it. You know, that's what I see a lot in education. So okay, let me just interrupt on that piece because schools have retention requirements where they have to maintain documents for some of them indefinitely forever. Mm-hmm. Other documents have to be maintained for a hundred years after a person graduates, others are 10 years. And so it, the, the requirements for schools to maintain documents is to me a little bit onerous. And on the one hand, there's a good reason. On the other hand, you know, it just sets us up for failure. If you're saving something from that you digitized in 1995 and didn't digitize it in a permanent way, like with a PDF archive or as a text document or whatever it is, something that could be read by future systems, you know, it'd be easy to not update that server or that software so that you can, you know, continue accessing it. Does that have anything to do with why we're having attacks that we're just using old stuff that we digitize once and are just storing now? No, I, I mean, that's, that's a very specific example, right? It, and it's, it's certainly pertinent, but I think it's more, it's more focus on what's the hot button issue right now. I feel like a lot of times, and um, you know, what I hear from, from school leaders and, and from, you know, the sea level and, and, and chats that I follow and things like that is it's just, there's so much going on. And so how do you make this a priority? Well, they, first of all, a lot of folks don't even know. And to be successful when it comes to cybersecurity in any organization, education or, or healthcare, it wouldn't matter. Um, a security program is needed. And, and what's missing, I think, from a lot of school mindsets and school cultures and values and, 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 and charter documents, things like that, what's missing is that it's a focus on best practices, real security best practices, because those exist. And people, I don't think people recognize they exist. And it's not a, you know, it's not a matter of, of saying, you know, this is an IT role. You know, we need our, make sure our IT department has a security technician on staff or whatever. Security is not an IT thing. In a lot of ways, I believe security should not be an IT thing. If it is, that means you're, you're kind of fox in the hen house kind of thing where if IT folks are making mistakes, that needs to be, it needs to be noticed that that needs to be, that needs to be part of your auditing plan. That needs to be part of your testing, your evaluation. 
Well, it seems to me, Sam, if I if I can, that that schools need to take a more holistic approach to security, right? That there needs to be not necessarily a chief security officer, but someone who is responsible for the overall evaluation of a school because you've got physical security issues, you've got you know student safety issues, then you've got IT security, and they're all related, right? So if someone can physically get access to your servers because you have lousy locks on the door, you have both a cybersecurity issue and a physical security issue. And I think you know, having been on a school board for 10 years, you know, as this, in some ways, as the digitization of the schools was really taking off, I would say that the school infrastructure, by this, I mean, the personnel, the leadership, and so forth, has struggled, and to some degree, is still struggling with the idea that that schools are now data centers that are attractive to cyber criminals in ways that I don't think anybody really imagined a few years ago. And so we need really a resetting of how we approach these issues. I agree. I agree completely. And so often people make decisions like going with an outsource provider versus, you know, a local on-premise device. And really what that is, it's, it's risk management. It's saying, you know, I want to mitigate this risk. I either buy cybersecurity insurance or I pay someone contractually and say, you're going to do it. You're going to protect it for me in a, in a good way. Or you go through all the trouble of, of putting the data on your, on your site. But the, the bottom line is if you have a, a security program that, that is, it's worth its, um, it's, it's really worth its, its time. You're going to have to address that no matter what. And with the BlackBot event, what we saw was it, it wasn't just about the encryption, the loss of data, the potential loss of data. You brought that up on a couple of shows before, where does this data go? And, and how do we know what the impacts are? years down the line, years down the line. And these kids, whether they're kids in South Florida with potentially with parents with names that might be on headlines or, or they're kids in, in rural Alaska, that it doesn't matter. That's their data. That's their privacy. And we, we should be appropriately funding that. We should be appropriately resourcing that and addressing it in a way that's, that's safe and fair, you know, and it's hard, but it has to be done. And one of those challenges, Sam, is that if you're devoting money to cybersecurity in a school, then that money comes from the pot of that is designed to benefit students. And it's hard to justify that sometimes for schools, especially when they don't understand it. So what would you say to somebody who's like, man, we just don't have the money because we need teachers or we need technology itself in the classrooms, especially during the pandemic. So what, what would be your suggestion there of how to, how to manage that? Well, it's, it's the risk management equation. You know, like it's this, the standard risk management equation. What's the worst case scenario? You know, like what's the worst case scenario? How often does that happen? How often would you expect it could happen? You know, what's the value of that? Not just the value in, in terms of, of money, but the impacts. And for me, the impacts are, um, well, first of all, the student privacy, right? The, the exposure of student information is, is absolutely, you know, health and human safety. That's, that's number one for me. Uh, the learning impacts, you know, so we're an institution where we're expected to have high quality education from beginning to end. This is why we're here. It's like a hospital. You wouldn't expect downtime in a hospital. You say, no, people need to be cared for. This is our, this is what we do. It's our job. So, you know, the impact of student learning, I think comes to mind for me. I think there's a, an element of preparing students for the real world where, you know, part of our holistic approach to security in a, in a business is, is doing security awareness, you know, for your, for your accounting team. 
I think the same thing is true for education. I think that security awareness and that education piece has to come in in K-12 as well. Uh, so I think that, again, the preparation for the real world. And then, of course, liability, you know, the money, the, the you know, what are, what are, what's our liability here? You know, what are we on the hook for? You know, whether it's the county, not to mention any names, whether it's the nearby county who just got hit for, for ransomware or Colonial Pipeline, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. There's, there's going to be financial impacts, even if it's paying for identity protection for the next five years for these kids or, you know, legal ramifications. If there's a fine from the state, for example, which we have in place here in Florida, there are fines if you don't report. So that's, that's my four things, I guess. It's a real impacts. And if, if you can look at those four things as school leadership team, and you can say, eh, you know, we're, we'll take the risk. That's fair. That's fair because you follow the equation and you said, this is what it could cost. This is the worst case scenario. And we're willing to accept that risk, but just understand you have other options. There's acceptance mitigation and, and hand it to somebody else, you know? <laughs> Well, and that's especially uh, fascinating as we talked talk to Scott Tennant in a previous episode about insurance res- responses to uh, cyber attacks and things like that. Really fascinating conversation. So definitely encourage everybody to check out that interview of Scott Tennant. What are some of the, the things that schools should be doing right now to deal with that risk? What's your suggestions of where people should start? I mean, you gave the four questions and that's good, but where should people put their time and energy right now? if you have limited resources of time and limited staffing, I get that, but there are pretty, pretty darn good. And you've, you've brought up uh, some of the K-12 resources for education that I really liked yours, um, Jethro from, uh, from the air force, right? The cyber Patriot. Yeah. I really like some of those resources and, and those are, there's a lot of free resources, but I guess what I would say is, how do you apply all these free resources, whether it's the cyber patriot for your middle school and common sense for your high school and, and this for this and this for that and, and, and know before or, or whatever your tool is, you know, we use, we use a tool for anti-phishing awareness for our, for our staff and students. And, and those are good, like pop open a can of security and pour it on a plate, right? Like it's ready to go. It's not that expensive, but I guess my caution and my advice and, and kind of a where to begin question is really what's your goal? You know, what are you trying to accomplish here? Because again, that security program doesn't require, you know, a, a CISO to sit down and write a security program. My advice would be sit down and just, uh, what are you at risk right now of? What are your gaps? What, what are the things that, that you need to be focused on? And if you can't answer those questions, you need to find somebody who can bring somebody in who can. And that's a, that's a drop in the bucket in terms of expenses to bring in a consultant, you know, not just your financials, not just, you know, where's your financial data stored? Is it on premise? Is it in the cloud? Not just your IT stuff in terms of, you know, where's your student information system backing up data? And not just, like you said, Fred, you know, not just the, the ingress, egress points of the building and how are you managing swipe cards versus, you know, metal keys, those kind of questions. Bring it all together and spend a little bit of time and say, what are we trying to accomplish? What are our priorities? And if you can get those priorities just written down, sometimes that's the first big step and then say, all right, where's the low hanging fruit? You know, where can we check a few boxes and say, okay, let's address this with this platform for phishing awareness. Let's address this with an off offsite backup. That'll take care of our, of our data location. We can use this for this, you know, create a checklist if you will. And, and there are people who do this. There are people who do this professionally 
all the time and let them point out all your flaws and then invite them back in a year to see if you did a good job, see what the holes are, if, if, if they're following their SOPs, you know? Right. It's like being in a good relationship. You want someone who can really tell you what's going wrong. Um, I will tell you that um, there are a couple of points that I think we should draw a line under. So number one, and I'd love your feedback on this, is the need for schools to conduct basically an honest audit of what information they have, what devices they have. And then the second thing related to that is what are the states of their policies and procedures with respect to the handling of information? So by way of example, one of the things that I've seen pop up in a couple of news stories are old Chromebooks winding up on eBay or on some other site, you know, resale site. And all of a sudden you've got student data that hasn't been properly wiped from these devices or old hard drives. Um, when I first started researching the whole Cybertraps uh, area, I, I, I was inspired in, in part by people who were buying hard drives off of eBay and they were getting medical and drug information on these drives because people were just not wiping them. And this gets back to your original point, which is that, yeah, people make mistakes, but there are fewer mistakes to be made if you've got a checklist that you're working down and somebody has to sign off on that. And that process can be verified and, and evaluated by various superiors. I mean, it's a little bit like NASA, right? I mean, NASA, <laughs> it's almost to the point of ridiculousness, but you don't put a rocket into space unless you've gone through a gazillion checklist point by point to make sure that things don't blow up. And yeah, most schools are not going to have those kinds of resources, but using some of the things you're talking about, it seems to me that everybody could up their game a little bit. And what I, what I would love to see done is I would love to see a, a, a consortium of schools, a group of schools come together and say, we recognize that we don't have program management on staff. We don't have professional project managers. We don't have professional cybersecurity. We don't have professional you know, security architects. We don't have this and this. And pool resources, pool resources and say, what would it look like if we came together and, and we all took the time to write one piece of this puzzle and then we, we, we share it around, we crowdsource it. Maybe the, the answer is to build a repository of templatized documents. And, and I'm not saying things don't change. Of course they change, but build a repository of templatized documents within that consortium. So you don't all have to reinvent the wheel. So you can just say, you know, this is our, this is going to be our standard acceptable user agreement to get on the, on the internet. And then school X says, well, we don't like this line, take it off. No problem. And then school Y says, okay, we've built a, we built what we think is a really good social media policy. Okay. That's good. And then you know, school A says, oh, I'm going to take that line out. No problem. I think that's exactly where, where, where schools are missing the boat is they're not working together. They're not sharing because we all have the same stuff. You know, if you're a public school, you're, you're Copa, Copa and, and SIPA. If you're uh, a private school, you probably got a small IT team that is maybe stretched a little bit thin and maybe no security staff. We're all sharing the same problems. Why not come together and, and write those things up. I'd love to see one of these state organizations or consortiums, you know, say, let's take the lead on this and let's make this happen. But, but I agree. That's, that's, that's really, that's the heart of it, you know, because I've entered into so many schools and so many districts where 
you know, I ask the question about, you know, how do we do this? And it could be a big question like, how do we create a student account? And how do we get rid of the account? How do we work it, you know, pass it all the way through the workflow? What, what does that look like? And the answer usually is we could write it down for you, but we don't have a procedure. We don't have a policy. We don't have standards. We don't have guidelines. Well, that's what you need, right? I mean, otherwise, how do you know you're doing it right? And how do you know that you're not handing out Chromebooks without being properly sanitized, right? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting, Sam, because you're, you know, what, what you're really getting at is, is the, one of the impacts of localized control of education. And I, mm-hmm. and I'm not here to argue, obviously, for federalizing everything, but the challenge that we face is that you've got multiple layers. You've got you know the states all have you know various approaches within state, and then nationally, each of the states is different. So there are some real impediments. I think if you could create a clearinghouse along the lines you're talking about and make it a well-known resource. Yeah, you could definitely make some progress, but I don't think we'd have kind of the universal buy-in, for instance, that you would get with the American Medical Association, which clearly has a governing body. Well, the sad thing is like, you know, if you check it out, there's probably only 12, 15 states in the United States that actually have a CISO. I mean, if you check that out, like I don't, I'm only aware of maybe, you know, a dozen, 15 maybe states that even have CISOs. And that speaks volumes about the state of the state. But yeah, I, and I agree. And, and, and also a plug for the latest out of the colonial pipeline debacle is uh, that the, the White House has now released some, some new information about you know, where they'd like to see people go and, and some of the goals that they've set for cybersecurity. And I, I haven't actually read it myself. I've read some highlights, but that's going to be really interesting to see where that goes and, and how can that maybe trickle down and what would that look like if it was handed out by the Department of Ed with strings attached? I don't know. And I think that piece is really interesting. Also, you've got this challenge of, you know, states doing their own thing, but then we have national associations and organizations and things like that, that could step in and, and provide some support to that and um, not committing to anything, but maybe that's a place for the center for cyber ethics to step in and, and provide some sort of resources for that to be able to do that. Um, Because it has always amazed me as I've gone to different schools, how unique every school is and how identical every school is. (laughs) And so, yes, they are unique, but there are, there are also a lot of things that are in common. And on some of these cybersecurity issues, it would be very easy to just say, here's how we're going to do it. Here's a place to start for everybody. And when you have a place to start, then it's a lot easier to, um, to move uh, in, a, in a better direction. It, the, the next thing I'd like to ask you about is what are some of the, I don't know, I guess like the unsettling parts of educational technology and the way that it's heading. And um, for me, one of those things is there's so much data being collected on our kids and stored offsite where companies are not required to store them in the same way that schools are. And it's very hard to assess how secure that particular company is. What are some of the things that are unsettling to you about the state of educational technology right now? Uh, I think your, your previous guest, Tom, Tom Harrison, I think it was, he, you know, he brought up a really good point about just the way we make decisions about bringing things on. And what I think I've seen in education since my very first year teaching was this encouragement to think outside the box and use limited resources and bring in lots of free stuff and 
what's the the website that we used to use to to get money, which just breaks my heart that teachers have to go out and beg for money on online. But donors yeah. choose. Donors choose. Donors choose. Yeah, you know, and so that's that's it's not just the norm; it's encouraged in a lot of ways in a lot of places. And um, what that leads to is exactly what you're saying: is we've got all these these websites where teachers might build a class and give all the kids the same password. And then the kids go in and they build profiles and we're sharing that online and we're, we're collecting videos and we're doing, um, you know, like Flipgrid is very popular, right? Flipgrid's got videos and we're encouraging kids to make multimedia projects, then post them online and they're on YouTube. And yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, that's probably the, the thing that scares me the most is it's, it's not a leak. What, what would you call that? What's a good word for that, Fred? You have a, is there a legal term? Not a leak, but a, you know, just kind of a, a slow trickle of information, right? We're not, we're not keeping it all in one place. <laughs> well, there's a whole bunch of different ways we could go with that uh, disclosure or, um, hmm, what would we say? It's, um, but it's, it's a failure to recognize that by not centrally managing things like, you know, uh, Flipgrid or, or, or personal YouTube accounts, we're, we're, we're basically giving, you know, our staff kind of a, a blank check to say, throw all the student data you want out there. Just don't, just don't tell anybody you do it. And, and we're, we're just protecting these things over here. You know, like, you know, we, we, we protect Seesaw and we protect, um, you know, Blackbot and we protect this tool. But if you use that, just don't tell us about it, you know, just whatever it is, because we don't want to pay the bill to have a, enterprise account and protect it appropriately. And yeah, I'm, or, try- yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, Sam, what the Latin is for ignorance is bliss, which is <laughs> <laughs> maybe what you're looking for. But look, the that's, that's, you know, yes, people will try to do that, right? People will try to say the scope of our responsibility is limited to X. And if something happens in Y, that is not our problem. So then I guess the question is, how do we reorganize things so that what we're really focusing is, as you were talking about earlier, the desirable outcome, as opposed to the specific mechanisms that we're dealing with. So the overall desirable outcome is the protection of student data in order to make sure these kids don't experience financial identity theft or other kinds of negative consequences. And it doesn't do us any good if we're focusing on just the data in Blackboard or just the data in Blackboard, you know, which my wife uses at the university level, it's, it's got to be the goal, the, the, the desired outcome that is the focus. Drucker, I think it's Drucker, culture, you know, culture and, and, and strategy, right? So it comes down to, it comes down to how do you, how do you then communicate those things? And are you going to, we, we, we mentioned auditing before, how do you communicate those things in such a way that that people don't get the impression that security is the enemy? Because it, in a lot of ways, it, it is. Like if you really think about it, you know, this there's two ends of the of the spectrum, and security is is basically, if if you want to be really secure, lock everything down, right? But very little work gets done, and if you want to be very efficient, you you know you you tone down security, and you let people do their thing, and it's it's nice and loosey goosey. So you got to find that balance. But with teachers, how do you tell a teacher, no? you're not allowed to use this free tool. And the question might then follow, well, how would you know? Or how would you stop me? So communicating those kind of things and then also being realistic and respectful to say, if this is a real need, what's the pathway to get this into our 
quote unquote approved list of applications or our approved functions. You know, so providing that that input into the into the leadership to say, this is something that's missing, and our teachers are all using free accounts for this thing that does X Y Z. If this is something that that they feel so strongly about, let's talk about how to appropriately put it into our managed list, right? Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the things is that you know there are ways to make almost anything safer, mm-hmm. and as long as you're having a transparent professional conversation about what the trade-offs are in terms of student safety, data protection, so on and so forth, then hopefully you get legitimate buy-in from all of the parties about how and whether to do a certain um, piece of software, a certain online service. I mean, I think the real concern is, well, there's two. I focused on when I was on the school board. Number one is the inadvertent data disclosure for using quote unquote free services, because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's very little that is free on the internet in one way or the other. And then the other thing too is, is retention and control of data when you're talking about cloud services and you really have to trust the partnerships that you develop or, or enter into when you're using those kinds of things. Yeah. So an example of that is that, um, Damon Hargraves and I at Kodiak Middle School created a piece of software called Picker in collaboration with Carnegie Mellon University and their senior capstone project, which was a really cool experience to do. And we created it. It was open source and people could um, download it, download the code, all that kind of stuff. But it was designed to only run on a local device and not be connected to the internet. It connected only to our intranet so that it wasn't going out to the web to ping for anything or get any information. All the data was stored on that one single device so that it wasn't going out. But we we couldn't pursue development of it because neither Damon nor I could, could say with like certainty that this was going to be a safe, appropriate tool to use in the schools even though it was exactly what I think what I think schools needed to have flexibility in their scheduling for students to choose their own types of events and to change those regularly. So it was good and it worked for us, but but the idea of scaling that up to be usable by other people was was really daunting to both Damon and me to try to figure that out. But we had to take into consideration those those standards of how can people use this? How can it be abused? And and what can we do to make sure that student data is still safe? And it's not an easy question to answer. And it, it seems to me that a lot of people are just not thinking about those things or just ignoring them, you know, to reference uh, Fred's ignorance is bliss in Latin phrase that he couldn't remember. <laughs> Fred usually knows those things. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Never knew in the first place. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Good to know. Well, you know, we're talking about things that, that we've known and we've known for a long time. And it, you know, coming back to the central question of what can we do? What can we, you know, how could we address that? I think, I think it's about communication. I think it's about transparent, uh, honest and, 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 and respectful communication because a lot of people don't know. I've walked into scenarios where I'll, TMI, where, you know, uh, staff will be using their personal uh, their personal Apple ID on their laptop. And that's of course their iPhone and they're using their, their school email for some personal things, whatever. And when I explain to them, when I say, let me, let me ask you this, your bank accounts, your work email, 
and you know that I could reset your email anytime I want to. And that's in the policy. I can anytime, right? And so if I reset your email and then I go to your bank and I say, I forgot your password, I'll get your link to reset it. Now, do you understand the risk? And they say, oh no, I've got two-factor authentication. I use my phone. I go, oh, but you're signed in with your Apple ID. So I also get all your text messages on your computer, which I also have full permissions over. And then it dawns on them and they say, oh, okay. But that respectful and that that authentic communication, that has to happen or they will never see the risks of student data on free tool XYZ or reusing passwords on, on, on ABC. They have to be communicated to when they're ready, just enough, just in time, just for me. You have to communicate with them appropriately so it really sinks in and then people can make good decisions and they'll be on board, you know, but it's hard. Um, so I think one final question that we want to ask, and this may be, you know, a whole nother, a whole nother episode, but China is in the news a lot. You've been there recently. And um, what is your perspective on the social media, internet, digital trends, things like that in China? And I realize, you know, as a final question, this could take a whole nother hour, but we're not going to spend a whole nother hour, <laughs> but what are, what are some of your perspectives and things you've, you've noticed with that? I'll be honest, as a consumer, it was it was fun. It really was because as, I, mean, I was obviously concerned about my privacy and my data and things like that. But as a consumer, it was a healthy experience because it really showed what would it look like if there was a uniformity and what if there was a simplicity of platforms? Because if you go to China and Fred remembers, I'm sure um, you can't you can't spend more than a week in China without downloading the WeChat app or getting Alipay. And for those who have never seen that experience it in a nutshell, you've got everything on your phone, literally everything. But in China, you can't have a phone unless you turn over your passport and say, this is me. And you're tied to a central database that says this number is mine. And it's my responsibility to maintain this number. And anything that happens with this number comes back to me. And then that, that builds a foundation where you can say, okay, now you can log in using your phone number. And that's a real ID. And you can use your phone number to log into WeChat. You've got your bank information. You've got all your group chats. It's got Facebook-like photo sharing. It's, it's, it's literally everything, streaming media. It's all the social media rolled up into one. And so I guess what I was going to say is a positive, because I do like to be positive about my experience. It, it was a really interesting thing to see kind of a unified approach and, and a very, <laughs> I guess, a streamlined approach to technology and, and data collection and sharing. The scary part, of course, is, you know, the internet, right? Like that's that's the scary part, you know, the uh, the covering up of dissent and and not just the, the blocking of things, but truly the cultural impacts of internet. Like I'll give you a real example. There's no doubt in my mind that Tiananmen Square in a negative sense happened, right? We don't have to go into the details, but there is zero doubt in my mind. I can tell you with great certainty that, and these are not, you know, China's version of QAnon. This is every normal Chinese citizen. They have either a, a clear understanding of what they believe happened. that's not true or simply seeds of doubt about, about real facts. And this is not like a long time ago. This is, this is their grandparents' lifetime, forgetting that there was fame and things like this. So that the impacts of, of the internet and the freedom of information on a society was astounding because I never could imagine that that you could be so lost and so far from the truth in a modern age. But again, 
flip side of the coin, I had, you know, I had friends that spent a lot of time in Taiwan who have uh, an open internet, Hong Kong, an open internet or abroad. And I can tell you a lot of times, you know, they, you know, they would think, oh yeah, this is, uh, this is maybe something that I was lied to when I was a child, but I think we all know what's happening now. And they, they kind of have this open feeling about truth in general, uh, distrust, I think in general, but it was, it was, it was alarming. I think alarming the way that, that the control of information can truly impact the society on every level was alarming. Um, I, and you're, and Sam, you're absolutely right about the WeChat thing. I don't think it took more than a week before it was clear that was the only way to function there. I think that obviously the suppression of information is a huge piece of that. Equally disturbing to me, and, and this circles back to our conversation about protection of student data, is that the Chinese have advanced quite a long ways along the, uh, along the or into the process of developing a social credit system that's based on that central ID and the use of online resources. So as we speak today, there are several million people in China who can't buy a plane ticket or a railroad ticket because their quote unquote social credit is too low. And all of that is defined by the CCP. And so you can easily imagine in, you know, I think we have parts of that developing here in terms of whether Uber picks you up or Airbnb rents you a, you know, a place to stay. And, and then when we start considering the potential impact on our kids of identity theft or misuse, then, you know, I think we, we've got a, a challenging future to protect them from. Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I think we could spend probably hours on just that topic. And I think, Fred, we definitely need to find someone who can who can speak to that, specifically that social credit score, because I see seeds of that starting here. Um, and, you know, based on how social media companies feel about certain things, you can do similar actions and stay or be kicked off the platform, depending on the ideology that you're aligned with, which you know, is, is scary when anybody is in control of that, whether it's a social media company or the government. So yeah, really, really great conversation, Sam. Thank you for being here. I've enjoyed it greatly and lo- love connecting with you again. So thank you. It's a My real pleasure, pleasure Sam. No, Alrighty. You. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode. If that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. And we look forward to seeing you on our live show on Monday.